Okay, last time we were talking about doping semiconductors. So we put N silicon atoms in place of our <coughs> uh, gallium. And uh, near each silicon, there's a coulomb potential. I had to, my pen wasn't on, so I had to write over it. So it looks better on the web than it does in my notebook now. On the web, it's only one line. <sighs> yeah, should have done it in red and blue. Near each silicon atom, there's a Coulomb potential, but the binding energy is so low because the reduced mass is tiny and there's a dielectric constant. So at room temperatures, the thermal energy is enough to kick them out into the conduction band. So we expect them to be moving along the conduction band. The question is, well, obviously, if there's a bunch of positive, they leave behind a positive silicon atom, they would prefer to be near the silicon atom because as they're moving through the conduction band, they have some kinetic energy. They also have some potential energy from those unscreened positive charges. So we'd like to work out what that potential energy function is. And uh, because we want to know the we want to know the distribution of charges. So that potential satisfies Poisson equation. So we need to know the, the <coughs> charge density. Charge density. If we if we have a silicon atom at the origin, there'll be a delta function, positive charge there, and then there'll be some distribution of electrons around that. So if we're calling n the electron density, there'll be an opposite sign contribution from the electron density. Uh, but on average, there's a bunch of other silicon atoms lying around. And if everything was uniformly distributed, then uh, the electrons would cancel out the silicons. So there must be some average equilibrium value. <coughs> so we'll take an ansatz, or a guess. We'll guess that the potential looks like a Coulomb potential. Times, uh, let me call it G of R, fudge factor. Um, well, this is comple completely general if it's a function of R. It's 1 over R times another function of R. So we'll plug that into our Poisson equation. We'll get a delta function from the 1 over R times G of R. And the 4 pi over R d squared G dr squared. So if we put that back in the Poisson equation with this charge distribution. We'll get 
second derivative of g, the delta functions will cancel, and the second derivative of g will be related to these uh, density terms. Now, if we knew the potential, we could figure out the density, because if it's in thermal equilibrium, then the deviation from the average value should just be some Boltzmann suppression due to the potential. So there's, if the potential is large somewhere, the electron can lower it, its energy, so it would like to be there. Now, we saw that it was a weak potential, so that is the, the potential energy is small compared to the average kinetic energy, or the KBT. So we can expand that exponential and just keep the first term. So we get, and we know the potential in terms of g, so we get an equation for g that we can solve. The 1 over r is cancel, and we recognize the solution is an exponential. So we'll call that <coughs> damping factor qd because Mr. Dubai was the first person to do this calculation. So that's the Dubai screening length. Well, one over its length. And from this, we can read off what QD squared is. It's proportional to this factor out front. an E over epsilon from in here. So if we put this back in here, this was the point of the calculation, we actually got a Yukawa potential. So in all the other examples I just told you it's a Yukawa potential because someone clever worked it out. But in this example it's simple enough that we can work it out ourselves. Don't need quantum field theory. So now we'd like to estimate what n naught is. So uh, what people usually do is take the Thomas Fermi approximation. So we'll take the approximation uh, that the electrons are in a Fermi gas. because that's the easiest thing we could do. So remember the Fermi energy was given in terms of uh, a Fermi wave number. Now we have a reduced mass. And the number density was also given in terms of the Fermi wave number. Which you can work out from 
uh, doping density because it depends on the volume of the sample and we need a, a KBT so we'll make the dubious approximation that the Fermi energy is about three halves KBT So if we plug that in to here, we can plug in for n naught and KBT. is uh, often called the Thomas Fermi inverse screening length because we've made this additional approximation on top of Debye's approximation. But now we have a Coulomb potential so we know what the scattering amplitude is. Uh, we've done put it in the Born approximation and do the integral and we've done it so many times you guys have the answer memorized get something that goes like 1 over the screening length squared plus kappa squared where kappa is 2k sine theta over 2 theta is the scattering angle K is the incoming wave number. It's also the outgoing wave number because we're doing elastic scattering. <coughs> so if you compare that with the scattering off a of Coulomb potential, there we saw that f of theta would go like just 1 over kappa squared. And so, if you take the ratio of these, some people like to say that the difference between these two is some effective dielectric constant. Because there's a dielectric constant here. And there's secretly a dielectric constant inside alpha. So in addition to having a dielectric constant, because we're inside some <coughs> material, that's there's a different dielectric constant inside the material compared to free space, they interpret this extra momentum dependence as being a momentum dependent dielectric constant. So maybe you've seen that in uh, E&M. So there's some effective dielectric constant which is the relative dielectric constant times the dielectric constant of free space and then you put in an extra <coughs> piece that depends on this momentum transfer squared. So we, we not only calculated the scattering amplitude, we also got the dielectric function. And the goal was to get to the mean free path. So the scattering, scattering cross-section 
differential cross-section. This is scattering amplitude squared. squared, so it should be there. <coughs> so we just have to integrate that over the solid angle to get the total cross-section. So the tricky part is there's a sine theta in here, but it's a straightforward integral. some alphas and m stars, we can write that in terms of the effective Bohr radius. So, for a typical example, if we take the number density of the doping atoms to be 10 to the 18 per centimeter cubed. And we take the incoming wave number to be equal to the Fermi wave number, which for this density is 1 over 3 nanometers. And the screening length is 5 nanometers. Then we get a cross-section, just plugging in these numbers, 24 nanometers squared. So that's an enormous cross-section compared to... You need a pen? That's an enormous cross-section compared to the cross-sections we've been talking about, where we had 10 to the minus 50 meters squared. It's huge, nanometers squared ginormous. So the scattering length is 1 over the density of the, <coughs> of the scatterers times the cross-section. So we had 10 to the 18th per centimeter cubed. It's 100 centimeters in a meter. And a meter is also 10 to the 9 nanometers. cross-section is 24 nanometers squared. So you get uh, this is 10 to the minus 7, 10 to the minus 21, 10 to the minus 3. So you get 42 nanometers. So with, the, with this density, <laughs> uh, the doping atoms are about 10 nanometers apart. And scattering cross-section gets as you go by about four of them before you scatter. 
but it, the useful point if you're des designing semiconductors is to know how these things depend on the doping density. So by varying the doping density, you can control the scattering length and the conductivity. Okay, so we're done. The course is over. So let's uh, talk about the pragmatics. So the final is on Wednesday, and according to the webpage I saw, it's at 10.30 in this room. Does everyone agree with that? And we go to 12.30. We have a review session at 4 o'clock today, also in this room. And we have uh, 30 minutes of a review right now. So according to the questions, uh, that I, the feedback that I got on Wednesday, the most confusing thing in the course is Klebsch-Gordon coefficients. So let's talk about angular momentum for a minute. Um, so suppose I had two angular momentum, angular momenta. Say I had an L equals 2 state and an L equals 1 state. So this tells me that the angular momentum squared of this guy is 2 times 2 plus 1, 6 h bar squared. This is 1 times 1 plus 1, it's 2 h bar squared. So this tells me the magnitudes of the angular momentum. And then there are possible, I can also measure the z component. And there are different possible orientations that are allowed. And those are labeled by the m. And m can go from l down to minus l. So in this one I have 2, 1, 0, minus 1, minus 2. Because I have a lowering operator L minus. L minus takes me from a z component of 2 down to 1. If I apply it again, it goes down to 0, minus 1, minus 2. Over here, I have m equals 1, 0, and minus 1. Now, when I add these two angular momenta together, what can I get? The maximum I can get is uh, if I take a z component 2 with a z component 1, I can get a z component that's 3. So the total j, if we call this L1 and L2, total j is L1 plus L2. Then the j value, I can get a variety of j values. Let's, let's look at the M component, the Z component. The biggest I can get is when they're both pointing up as much as possible. And they're just components of a vector that we've measured or we can measure. So they just add. So the maximum I can get is 2 plus 1, which is equal to 3. And then I can act with a lowering operator and go down. I go down in units of 1 again. So I get 2, 1, 0, minus 1, minus 2, minus 3. Now, this 
highest weight state was unique. There was only one way I could get three. But to get two, not so unique. Because I could have taken two and zero, or I could take one and one. That's two different ways to get two. And for one, I could have taken two and minus one, or one and zero, or zero and one. <coughs> so when I try to write down wave functions, or brackets that represent these states of total angular momentum, the states that are eigenstates of j squared and jz, for this case, it's easy because it's obviously just the product of this state and that state. So if I want <coughs> and if m is 3, I know that the, the total j is going to be 3 because it can't be smaller than m. So for this guy, it's a unique state. It's the 2, 2, 1, 1 state. But if I want to know what the state with uh, z component 2 is, <coughs> it could be some linear combination of these two things. And just like in linear algebra, so this is some subspace. This is the subspace of things that have jz equal to 2. It's got two independent kets, two independent wave functions. So just like in linear algebra, if you have a two-dimensional space, you can change to another basis by choosing two other orthogonal vectors. So these vectors are things that represent eigenstates of L1 and L2. There's another basis that represents eigenstates of total J. Those guys will be linear combinations of these kets. And conveniently, well, for anything to make sense, there have to be two of those vectors in the other basis. If I had a two-dimensional space, there's going to be a two-dimensional space in the new basis. So <coughs> this, the subspace where Jm equals 2 I could have j equals 3, jm equals 2, which I get by lowering that. I can have j equals 2, jm equals 2. So these guys have to be some linear combinations of 2, 2, 1, 0, and 1, 1, sorry, 2, 1, 1, 1. This one is some other linear combination, but we know it has to be orthogonal because it has different eigenvalues, and we proved that if we have states that have different eigenvalues, then they have to be orthogonal. So just by orthogonality, we could say that uh, this one is minus 
lucky star. And this one is A star. So these things that we called A and B, those are the Klebsch-Gordon coefficients. Yeah. So that's the whole point of the exercise, is to under be able to write eigenstates of total J in terms of eigenstates of individual angular momentum that you added up to get the total J. Yeah. I'm adding the Z component. Oh, okay. But I mean, your, your total J on that, that line is supposed to be 2, right? 2, no. two, 2 plus 0, 1 plus 1. I don't know, the first numbers. First numbers don't add up. Because one of them is uh, J equals 3, and one is J equals 2. Okay. <coughs> um, should they add up? So the, the Z components add up because they're components of a vector. And unfortunately, we can't measure all three components at once. We can only measure the magnitude in one component. But that one component that we choose to measure, whatever axis we choose to measure it along, still has to act like a component of the vector. So it still has to add. But these magnitudes don't have to add because if I add two vectors, I get a new vector, the magnitude is not the sum of the magnitudes. So is everyone with me on this? I guess I should have said it like this in the beginning. So, so I have a question. Yep. What would you do now if you had three states, you know, like if you're, you know, your, ortho your transition from, you know, you have one set and you have the orthogonal set. What would you do if you had a set that was three and then finding the orthogonal set instead of three? So I'd always, we always start by finding the unique one. Then we can lower it. Um, so if this was made out of three guys, then uh, when I lower it by lowering each one, I'll get linear combinations of three different states. Uh, but by using the lowering operator, here, we know exactly what uh, this state is. So using the lowering operator on this tells us this one, no matter how many things we combine. Right. And, and then, uh, then we need to find a state that uh, is orthogonal to this. So let me write down an example. say I had 4, 2, and 1 as my angular momentum. So the top state would be a 4, 4, 2, 2, 1, 1. And 
then when we lower this, we'll get some linear combination. Or three, we lower each one of them individually. There's some numbers here that are not working out. This was a state that had uh, JM equal to 7. Now we've got a state that has JM equal to 6. Now there's another state of, that has to have 6, 6. state that is, it's orthogonal to that. Do we need one more piece of information? Will there be two possibilities in each? There might, Pardon me? I was thinking that there might be two ways of making orthogonal well, states. So yeah, which is three dimensional. Yeah. So these are the three possible things that can add up to six. If I did it right. And what's the third possible state? It can't be five, six, because that would be going below, right? Yeah. Just a question about this, this idea. So when we lower, when we take the orthogonal state, we say 7 goes to 6 because we have a distinct eigenstate that's associated with the same z eigenvalue. Therefore, the first eigenvalue must be different, but it can't be lower than 6, so it must be 6. would be that if I, I would never give this problem on a final. We can first combine these guys to make a singular states of total of these two. Then once we have those using our simple methods, then you can take those states and add them to that one. And then again, you only need to worry about two by two subspaces. This three makes my brain hurt. Okay, so the only trick that remains is to work out what A and B are. And then for that, we just use that formula for the lowering operator with the square root of J times J plus 1 minus M times M minus 1. And if we want to be fancy, we can do it consistently where we keep the factor here because we can lower 
So we go from here to there, we can lower this to get the square root out front. Uh, here I lowered this guy to that guy. So this has a square root out front, and this one is lowered to this one. Gets a square root out in front. And then I, when I, so I can keep that square root there, divide through by it, and then check that I get a normalized answer. Or I can forget about that guy and say it's proportional to this, and then just normalize it at the end. So it's safer to keep that factor there and explicitly check that it works. Because it's like a cross-check on your calculation. But if you're confident, you can just normalize your answer at the end. <coughs> so should we do an example? Yes, no? How many people want to go through the algebra part? You have to raise your hands high. How many people would rather do something else? It's the same number of people. <laughs> okay, let's do... I happen to have one written out here. It's very pretty. Yes. So that... Aren't you glad I rewrote these notes for you? Um, so it's combining L equals 1 with S equals a half. We want to make some total eigenstates. So the possible J values we can get are 3 halves, 3 halves minus 1, which is 1 half. And then if we take 1 away from that again, we've got a negative value of J, so there's only two possible values of J. So we start with the highest weight state, so j equals 3 halves, the m is 3 halves. There's only one way we can get the m component to be, the z component to be 3 halves. We take 1 plus a half. Then we act with lowering operators. So the lowering operator on this guy has an L of 1, so we have a square root of 1 times 2. square root of 1 times 2 minus 1 times m minus 1, 0, so it's just square root of 2. And for this guy, lowering spin half, we remember that those square roots are always just 1. So we don't have to do anything. And then to normalize it, we divide by square root of 3 because root 2 squared plus 1 squared is 3. And if we had bothered to check on the other side, lowering this guy would be a little bit painful. Uh, it would have been square root of 3 halves times 5 halves minus 3 halves times 1 half. So we get square root of 12 over 2, which is square root of 6. Over 4. over 4, which is root 3. So it worked. Okay, so and then if you want to keep going, we find the orthogonal vector and and so on.
So it's really supposed to be easy once you understand the conceptual idea. Any questions about that? Ten minutes. Let's see. I've got the hydrogen decay problem. I've got a delta function potential cross-section problem. Any takers? Hydrogen atom problem. Free electron gas. What? Whatever one you think will be the most difficult. Okay. Let's do the scattering one, actually. Okay. The scattering one's pretty good. So, it's very easy. Given a delta function potential at some position A, what's the cross section? So, Born formula tells us at low energy the scattering amplitude is 1 over m over 2 pi h bar squared integral over the potential. If it wasn't at low energy there would be that e to the i momentum transfer dot r but when we take the momentum transfer to zero that just becomes 1 and uh, for a delta function potential, it's pretty easy to do the integral. The angular integration gives us 4 pi, and then we have a delta of r minus a, r squared dr. Oops, that's an a squared. From here, r has to be equal to a. Cross section, because it's spherically symmetric, it's just 4 pi f squared. So you get 16 pi m squared alpha squared a to the fourth over h bar to the fourth. And does it have the right units? So since alpha must have units of uh, energy over length, energy times length, That's these scattering cross-section ones are actually too easy, but I'll probably give you one anyway. So the only question is: Is it a if, if it's a low-energy scattering, then it's just a trivial integration, and if if it's not low-energy, then there's some angular integration too. What can you do? Since we didn't have time to do all the complicated stuff, we just did the easy stuff.
we do this in five minutes. Uh, so there's a problem here. Calculate the lifetime uh, to go from the triplet to the singlet in the hyperfine splitting. Remember that the electron could line its spin up with the proton or not, and it got a small splitting from magnetic interactions. So there was a tiny energy splitting that uh, was suppressed by the proton mass. and four powers of the Bohr radius. So the frequency of the photon that's emitted would be that energy splitting over H bar. And the energy density in the electromagnetic field is uh, goes like E squared plus B squared with appropriate powers of epsilon naughts and mu naughts. This is a C squared, even though it doesn't look like it. So before, when we did our transitions, we only looked at the energy density in the electric field. But because this is a, a magnetic transition, we need to look at this term. But all the formulas go through. It's just that, so before we did looked at the dipole approximation, we wrote it, the Hamiltonian of a dipole inter interacting with the electric fields is P dot E. For a magnetic transition, we know it's a gyromagnetic ratio times the spin dotted into the magnetic field. That's it. There's a hole in my paper. That's a B on top of a hole. So all we have to do is take the dipole formula, which we calculated was omega naught times the square of the expectation value of the dipole magnetic moment, or the dipole electric moment, squared over 3 pi epsilon naught h bar c cubed. Now instead of this dipole moment, we have the spin acting like the dipole moment. And because we replace epsilon naught by 1 over mu naught, we get a mu naught on top instead of an epsilon naught on the bottom. And so we need the expectation value between the initial state and the final state, the spin flips, so we need gamma h bar over 2 sigma between a spin up and a spin down. So we need this expectation value. So if we write the spinners as two component vectors, and I'm not writing down the z component because 
the Z component is diagonal, so it doesn't have an off-diagonal matrix element. If I had written Z, Z hat and minus Z hat here, it wouldn't contribute because there's a one on top and a one on the bottom. So if you take that, this acting on here comes up, and so we get next hat minus i, y hat. And so when we square it, minus gamma h-bar over 2 in here. We'll get a gamma squared h-bar squared over 4, and then we'll get 1 squared plus i squared. So after that, it's just a matter of plugging into this formula all the pieces that we have assembled. Pardon me? Uh, modulus squared, sorry. So, you get a transition rate plugging into the formula of 5.8 times 10 to the minus 15 per second, which corresponds to a lifetime of 5.5 times 10 to the 6th years. So if you made, if you looked, if you took your hydrogen atom and got it in the exci excited state, you would have to wait a million years for it to decay. So it'd be a long time before you finished your thesis. So that's why, <laughs> but when you look out into space, there are more than a million hydrogen atoms out there. There are billions and billions. That's an old joke. There's a lot of hydrogen out in space, so that's why they can still see the transition, even though it takes a million years for it to happen. Okay, so at four o'clock, We'll reconvene and we'll go through the practice midterm. If I finish it by then. Huh? The practice final. The one that's posted on the webpage. I'll go start working on it now. No, it won't take that long.